finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. Reader beware, you're in for a scare, because this is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. I was going to also, on top of the the thing, the quote from Goosebumps, I was going to try and do like the Trios of Horror thing and make like our name of our podcast like Spooky and Ooky, but then I realized it's already Dried Up Brain, and there's really not much you can do with that. You could go like Dried Up Brain. Yeah, I guess I could do that. Well, I'll save or edit that. that out. I'll save that for when we do like a zombie book. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Important context for this episode: if you've not listened to our other ones, Andrea is my mom and a librarian and a librarian. So that's probably going to be important for the conversations that'll come up in regards to this particular series of uh, juvenile horror novellas. I think everyone, when you say that, knows exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, we read, for this episode, for the, our Halloween episode, even though it's going to come out at the, you know, before, well before the 30th, but it's the Halloween month, uh, we read the fourth book in the Goosebumps series by R.L. Stein, which is called Say Cheese and Die. You, people might know it as the one with the cover where it's a Polaroid of a family of skeletons having a barbecue. They might also know it as the one where the TV adaptation of it has a young Ryan Gosling in it. When his name was more accurate than it is now. Yeah, I I was confused when I was doing research about this particular volume, why it had its own Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that's why. I think there are a couple other Goosebumps episodes that have notable Canadian actors in them before they... Uh, became famous enough that people forgot they were Canadian. Well, let's talk about Goosebumps. So, Goosebumps was a series. The first series, the original series, had 62 books in it. And it ran from 1992 to 1996. And they were all written by R.L. Stein. Mm-hmm. It is the second most popular book series behind the one about the wizards. Ah, that one. And it is one of the most challenged books, but according to the American Library Association, I guess because it deals with horror and supernatural, um, a lot of parent groups have tried to have the Goosebumps series. Not myself, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I'm a librarian, even though I'm a mom, um, have had to have this series banned from school libraries. It honestly makes more sense to me that people would try to get this banned than... Uh, wizard book because like this this one even is like pretty dark there is a a third well it's weird to say about a book that's so short but there's a like third act crisis in this that draws on some real real world darkness i wanted to talk briefly about rl stein whose real name is robert lawrence stein and it's abbreviated rl stein which i think is sort of a nod to sort of that like literary trend of initials you know like D.H. Lawrence or something like well, that well yeah but also he's writing in, a, in I don't know if this has anything to do with it but I, I the thing that I think of is he's writing in this space for younger readers and like C.S. Lewis yeah I think e. also White. it's interesting that he started as a comedy writer he wrote jokes well, for stand up and he did comedy um, 
you know, like sitcoms and things like that. And then he moved into horror. But I guess his first books that he was published, he tried to publish them as adult novels, I think, but they were considered to be young adult novels. And then I think when he partnered with his wife to form the press that ultimately started producing the Goosebumps series, he decided to solely focus on... I guess it's not even young adult. I think it's like supposed to be like middle school or yeah. That's why I call them juvenile. juvenile. I think that's like the that's probably an outdated term, but that's the one I associate with it. I wasn't just trying to do that thing where uh, I talk like I'm reading a thesaurus. But I think the thing that's interesting because Goosebumps is the first juvenile literature phenomena that comes along, like you know, not including like the Nancy Drew and that kind of like early '50s '60s, but like. It became like almost an empire. There were books and merchandise and TV shows and movies and audio books. There was video games, board games, collectible cards. I mean, it was just sort of like school supplies was another big thing. It was just sort of branded all over. And I think that sort of set that precedent where things became literary phenomena and pop culture relevant because i mean you see that a lot with a lot of the new series you know you talk about the um rick royden his series about the young greek gods i can't even think of the name oh of it. Uh, the, the, the olympians percy jackson yes you know those kinds of things become sort of money makers now for publishers well i think like in the 80s with like transform this is a weird road to go down but like in the 80s, with like Transformers and stuff like that, they loosened the standards on marketing to children. And like, I think that's sort of what allowed the like merchandising like phenomenon of like stuff aimed at kids. Like, the precursor is like Star Wars, and then like it goes into full force with stuff like Transformers and He Man and stuff like that. And I think this Goosebumps is, like you said, the first sort of kids literature series to rise to prominence in that era like like the stuff you were citing as precursor like the nancy drew and hardy boys and stuff like that that's all well pre you know the advent of the merchandising machines that are designed to just pump out shit for kids to like there there was not the infrastructure in place this is the first Series like this have become popular once the infrastructure was in place to, like, sell branded shampoo to kids. Exactly. And I think, like, one of the really sort of genius things that this press, I think it's called Parachute Press or something like that, Mm -hmm. is they partnered with the Scholastic Book Club. Yeah. Which, like, is another way guaranteed to make money for books, especially serialized books for kids, because every kid... In middle school, went to those fairs, got those money, filled out those little, like they got the little catalogs and they filled out the book slips and it was like a huge thing to be able to select, select what you wanted to read and select the books that you wanted. And then they would come like to your school and you would get delivered your packet of books and then you would, you know, run home and start reading your like serialized Superman books or whatever you ordered that week. Yeah, yeah. I de- yeah, I, I, I definitely, this is, like, one of the things that I associate with, like, the Scholastic Book Fair is, like, Goosebumps. And not just the books, but, like you said, like, all the extra erasers with monsters on them and fucking folders with a skeleton. I think it's, this is a weird thing, but I remember at one point, 
you okay here's the thing we talked about this on a previous episode yes okay so just a quick recap Nate loved to read the Goosebump books, but he was an advanced reader and he was not allowed to to read the Goosebumps books for school. Yeah, only we would, for fun. We would have, and I'm sure some schools still do this, and other schools did it too. But we have like what was this? sustained silent reading and stuff like that, and you had to bring in an approved book to read. And I wasn't allowed to select Goosebumps for that. And because of, of that, that wasn't they weren't like a thing you would you would buy me as a kid. Yeah, but I do remember it was back to school, and Nate wanted some type of goosebump paraphernalia, and he was not allowed to have it. And he went out with his grandma, I guess, to either Walmart or one of those places like that, and he came back with a goosebumps folder. I remember very clearly because we still have the folder. Yeah, we use it to store our taxes, and it had a hamster on it. Yeah, I think it had a hamster on one side and a skeleton on the other side. I believe the cover, the the image of the hamster is the cover for the second, or maybe just the first, in the Monster Blood series. There are like a couple sub-series within Goosebumps. Say Cheese and Die is one of them where there's like three of these. But Monster Blood's like the, one of the big ones. And there's like the dummy and the haunted mask. Like those are the other ones. But I remember also you used to like to get by the Goosebumps books at the thrift shop because they would always have them in the children's book section because there would be so many of them you could buy them for like five or ten cents each well yeah i mean a lot of my childhood was like going to the thrift shop and because books were paperback books were between five to 25 cents depending on like where you were uh i would get a bunch be able to get a bunch of books for like a couple dollars and then i would read them all in like one day and that's sort of how, you know, we've talked a little bit on the podcast before, but that's sort of how I got into science fiction, specifically, like, classic retro science fiction, vintage science fiction, was because, you know, nerds would, you know, parents would kick their kids out of the basement and then sell their nerd-ass book collection at the thrift shop, and you would be able to get, like, for a dollar, get at least four books with spaceships on the cover. (laughs) And I would read those. Now they have book dealers that specifically work with trade paperbacks, especially in science fiction and fantasy, because they're yeah. so collectible. But a lot of them still end up slipping through the cracks, and it's just like they made a ton of them. They're mass market paperbacks, yeah. so only a few of them end up costing a lot. And even then, like if you don't care about which printing you're getting, you could still like get a cool paperback copy of whatever fucking science fiction book you want for cheap. But I think to say what people will about the Goosebumps series, first of all, R.L. Stein was very smart. He knew the formula for creating books that were targeted directly to the age group that he was writing in. He knew, he sort of focused on like, you know, he had this formula, like it was always about like kids who live in the suburbs Mm -hmm. and there was always some kind of supernatural object. And then there was always this sort of like, bully tension that was like a secondary plot point because this is something very relatable to kids at that age dealing with like either older kids picking on them or straight up bully situations and then there's always like a problem and the kids have to fix it before it's revealed because the parents are kind of like they're either wholesome and caring but sort of bumbling parents or they're neglectful workaholic parents the same thing with like fairy tales or whatever the parents are sort of often out of the picture and then he sort of 
focused Sometimes on... Sometimes the parents are the antagonists. Right. But there was, like, a focus. There was, like, no, like, violent deaths, like, no bloody... The children themselves were never killed. But there might be, like... in this book is a good example of the, the protagonist of the story. One of the characters is, is taken <laughs> off the board. We'll, we'll get into it when we get into the plot. Yeah, there's really... I mean, it's mostly, like psychological fear that he's sort of building this sort of tension that causes like anxiety which causes that kind of like suspense we talked a lot about this when we did uh, um the hellbound heart yeah i mean i think a lot of his stuff plays on that like kid anxiety of having something you can't tell someone like that where you're like you know you've done something bad or whatever and you're hiding it like a lot of this story is about the protagonist trying to figure out how and if he can tell anybody about what's going on. Because the... Well, we'll talk about it. Like, the actual supernatural element doesn't really put him in any direct danger. I think what's genius, though, I think it's... He doesn't pander. And he doesn't have... There's no moral at the end of the story. So it's not a cautionary tale. It's just, like, straight-up fiction for the joy of reading fiction. I mean, I have a take on this story. that I, I, I don't know if there, necessarily know if there's a moral. I mean, I think this is a story about uh, coming to terms with the concept of mortality. But um, one of the things I forgot to mention, which I think is very funny, is that Stephen King referred to R.L. Stein as the Stephen King of children's literature. I mean, that makes sense. He's maybe even more prolific than Stephen King. I Probably. I don't actually know. I mean, there's... Did you did you cite a number about how many there were in the original Goosebumps series? The first series had 62 books in it, which is incredible because you figured it ran from 92 to 96. Yeah. So for four straight years, he cranked out 62 of these books. And that's not even including, like, just writing the book. There's illustrations, cover art. I mean, there's a whole branded package. So Wait. this industry of making Goosebumps was, like, a big business. Yeah, I mean, and that, like, there's the original series, but there's also spin-off stuff like the Choose Your Own Adventure type ones. I forget what the name of those are. And there's sequel series, because there's Goosebumps 2000, which I remember, which I think are pitched slightly at a slightly higher reading level and age than the original Goosebumps. And then he later on, like, fairly recently revived the series... And now it's basically, like, a series of series which tend to have, like, an overarching plot or framing device. Like, he's done a... I don't really know anything about those. The third Say Cheese and Die book falls into the, like, Horrorland series, which was, like, the first of this revival. That I think sort of would happen largely because of the movie they made. Yeah, I think he also has another series for slightly older readers called Fear Street, which he actually made first. Before Goosebumps. And I read then, a couple of those when I was yeah. a kid. But I think it's interesting because a lot of like authors are now moving into that sort of juvenile literature. Like James Patterson has like a Supernatural series. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things I wanted to... This is totally unrelated. I don't know if I should bring it up. Just bring it up. If it's bad, I'll just cut it out. One of the things that I really liked... I went to the webpage for Goosebumps and R.L. Stein. One of the things that I thought was really great was he has this sort of packet of like homeroom like handouts for Mm -hmm. children so that they can follow the formula that he's created to make their own goosebumps Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it's like a series of like PDF files that you download and you work through the activities. And then when you finish all the 13 activities, you'll have a plot to make your own Goosebumps story. So I think it's really nice that he's sort of encouraging kids who are interested in maybe trying to write their own stories to follow the sort of writing prompts and things that he uses to create his own goosebumps, which I think is a really nice thing to do. Yeah, I think so. That is, that's pretty cool. I think it also counteracts this idea that goosebumps are not like quality reading. I think this one, I was honestly surprised reading this one about how good it was. Like I had like generally positive memories of Goosebumps books from when I was a kid and was surreptitiously reading them. But, like, the ones that I tended to remember were, like, the weirder ones. Like, I, I had basically no memory of this one except the cover. And the ones that sort of suck in my memory are the ones where it's, like, an evil sponge or whatever. And I was like, this one, I think, is actually really, really intelligently constructed and... Like, there's a lot more going on than you would imagine. I did, however, read the synopsis for the sequel to this one. Uh, Say Cheese and Die Again. Not a great title. (laughs) The third one has a much better title, just Say Cheese and Die Screaming. That's what the original title was going to be. Oh, well, that's... But then they cut it. But so I read the synopsis for Say Cheese and Die Again, which is the, the 64th... No, the 44th one in the series. And you can tell... I think that there was some fatigue because the plot to that one, I don't know if it reads better in the book, but that one seemed really dumb. But I think, I mean, there comes a point where you got to reach saturation at this. I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, if you go to like Barnes and Noble and you go into like the young adult juvenile section, there's hundreds of series now. Oh, for sure. So it kind of started this sort of chain of like series that were specifically written for young readers yeah and also i don't want to like when we talk about his formula or whatever i also think it's important to acknowledge that like it's pretty clear to anyone that has like experienced them that what he's basically doing is writing ec comics horror stories like tales from the crypt stuff for kids like that's essentially where he's taken a lot of his structure from but then rather than like, the twist is, like, rather than being about adults and being, like, morality tales, these are, like, about kids, and they're largely about, like, kid anxieties. Yeah, and I don't think that, I mean, they're not any more graphically violent than, like... I mean, they're not graphically violent to begin with. No, I think the worst it gets is some of them are gross, which is <laughs> cool. That's fun when you're a kid, and also well, now. What is the name of the... The mannequin that's the mascot. He's in the movies. The J- Jack I, Black made two movies, right? Yeah. I don't remember his name. The Slappy, I think. Yeah, I remember the mannequin, and I remember um, he had, a, like, a rabbit that was, like, a vampire. He was, like, it reminded me of, like, Binuncula. I think there's, like, there, there was, like, a magician one or something that had, like, a monster rabbit on the cover. That might have been one of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. I liked those a lot when I was a kid, and those were like the ones that, those are actually the ones I remember the most distinctly because I really was just like super into Choose Your Own Adventure books as a kid, and I would like write my own, which were really bad, probably. Uh, and I had this at one point, I was gonna write like an epic, like literary Choose Your Own Adventure novel, um, oh which I still have like pages and pages of notes for. Uh, which I might do someday. 
It was also like a new weird thing. Well, this is not a discussion for this podcast. Do anyway. you remember binocular? Yeah, I remember binocular. Binicula. Binicula. Yeah, that, that's like a that's like an even younger. I think it's targeted an even younger reader. Yeah, it was like a rabbit, but he like sucked the. I mean, he's a vampire, but he sucked the like color out of vegetables. That also has like an inexplicable sequel. They should have did a Bonicula versus Stuart Little. That would have been great. Let's talk about this book. <laughs> Unless you have more stuff to say about oral sign and goosebumps in general. No, I just, I mean, I don't think that, like, my, I'm not dunking on them because I feel like they're poorly written. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, it was just a matter of, not, I have to defend myself. Like, I feel like we a We understand. We've gone, we've gone through enough of the context <laughs> for it. So, the plot of this book is, it's set in the suburbs, like you sort of mentioned, a lot of these are. And it's centered around this group of friends that consists of our protagonist, Greg, whose personality is that he is the protagonist. And then his sort of bossy friend, Sherry, his gangly goofball friend, Bird. And then his name sort of, is Doug. Yeah. He looks like a bird. They call him Bird. His name is Doug. And then there's the sort of the insecure friend, that's kind of his personality trait, uh, Michael. And they're all hanging out and they're bored one day. They decide to, as you do, as a rowdy... I think they're like preteens. I think they're like 12 or 13. Yeah, they're definitely not. Yeah, because at one point they get menaced by the mysterious and aggressive teenager. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They decide to, uh, as you do, sneak into the creepy abandoned house at the end of the street, which is called the Kaufman House. Oh, wait, we didn't go to the best part. Their town that they live in is called Pitt's Landing. Yeah, nothing nothing happens in Pitt's Landing. That's like how the book opens. So they decide to sneak into the Kaufman house, which ha- also, like, the other sort of mythology attached to the Kaufman house is that there's this creepy, like, dude that wanders around the neighborhood named Spidey because he, which everyone calls Spidey because he's like got long spindly arms and he dresses in black, all black. And nobody really knows anything about him and it's speculated that he lives squatter style inside the Kaufman house. But they sneak in and they wind up in the basement and Greg discovers this Polaroid camera or Polaroid style camera. Yeah, so they're trying on these clothes, these sort of dated 70s and 80s clothes and they find there's a workbench and he I don't know if he leans on the workbench or he does something to the vice and the handle turns and it pops open a se- this is another plot point that comes up a lot the secret yeah uh thing that he you know the secret door or the secret cabinet or the secret sort of cubby where he finds this camera yeah and so he takes the camera and one of them is like standing on uh I think it's Michael or Bird. I can't remember. One of them is standing on the stairs and he goes to take a picture of him and he does like a pose and he takes the picture and when the picture develops, it shows that the stairs have collapsed and his friend is splayed out on the ground and then the stairs collapse and his friend ends up on the ground. It's never really specifically mentioned, but you're very clearly, the camera is very clearly described as being a Polaroid. Because they just I, don't use the brand name. Yeah, they just don't use the brand. It's name. like one of a, fa- a quick instant developing camera, and 
so that's like that spooks them out. They leave the house. I think there's some indication that Spidey is about to return. Right. And they, they hear him fling. upstairs, so they We didn't talk about it, but the writing style of the Goosebumps books, which carries which was I think the thing that was probably the most heavily emulated out of this. And I don't know if he's the originator of this style or not. Probably not. I'm sure like pulp. He's basically drawing on like pulp writing. But every chapter, no matter how short, and some of them are like a page, ends with some sort of cliffhanger. That's like the James James Patterson like playbook. And so a lot of times they're fake outs. One end with a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Like I think the first one that happens ends up being a fake out. It's like Bird playing a prank by pretending to be like attacked by something. But they they get out of the house. They have the camera. Uh, Greg like sort of through fear basically accidentally steals the camera and so then there's part of that like real life kid anxiety of like i didn't mean to do this bad thing but i did a bad thing because i i ran away and accidentally stole this camera and he doesn't know what to do with it and he's got it he comes home and his family has a new station wagon uh and he takes a picture of the car and in the picture the car is wrecked yeah, and I think this is part of that sort of sets up for that anxiety-driven plot point where he 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 very quickly figures out that the picture either tells what's going to happen or makes what's going to happen. And when he sees the wreck and his parents are very excited and they want to go for a ride, he doesn't want to go. But he's afraid of, like, saying, like, I don't want to go because I saw this picture. Yeah, he tries to weasel his way out and there's, like, another anxiety thing where it's like, you can't... He can't say why he doesn't want to go, and none of the excuses he come up, comes up with work. And they go, and then this whole driving sequence, nothing bad happens. They get, like, a close call with a truck, but it's just this whole time he's in the back with, like, this knot of anxiety in his stomach because he's convinced that something bad is going to happen. And I think, like, that's the core of this story is it is, like, about anxiety, even more so than about, like, actual horror. Because all the camera does, I mean, there's this implication that maybe the camera is making the things happen but it's never confirmed if that's the case so functionally all the camera does is tell you that a bad thing will happen eventually and it's like bad things will happen eventually like no matter what so if you take a picture of someone it'll show a bad thing happening to them because that will happen at some point and the like horror of the story is just knowing that bad things are going to happen which is like exactly what anxiety is it's just this fear of the future where they get home from the drive and he to test the camera out takes a picture of his older brother and it shows him looking like afraid and concerned standing in front of the house across the street from the playground and then the next day they go to the playground to watch their friend playing a little league game and his brother runs up and stands in front of that house and has that expression and reveals that their dad's been in a car accident. The car's been wrecked, like he saw in the photo, and their dad's hospitalized. He's not dead, but he is hospitalized and out of the picture for the rest of the story. Before that happens, though, they take a picture of Bird, who's in the baseball oh. game, mm-hmm. and it shows him laying on the ground, sort of dazed looking. And then there's something about his neck is twisted the wrong way. Yeah. Implying that he either has a broken neck or he had a really, really serious fall. Mm-hmm. And then he gets injured during the game. He gets injured during the game. And it's, it's like that position. But it's interesting at this point that he, Greg, is afraid of the camera because he doesn't know if it's telling the future or making things happen. 
but all the other kids are curious about the camera because they think it tells the future and they want their pictures taken in the beginning. Yeah. Well, yeah, because there's this part, the next thing that happens is like Greg decides he doesn't want to use the camera anymore. And it's the next thing that happens is it's going to be Sherry's birthday party. And she begs him to bring the camera and he can't talk his way out of it. And he has to show up with the camera. And then when they're hanging out, she has this idea to take everybody's picture and see the future pictures. But when he starts by taking her picture, she keeps just not showing up in it. Right. But in, before that, there's an episode of foreshadowing where the mysterious teenagers start bullying them at the baseball field. And they are, become aware of the camera and they kind of want the camera. Yeah. Uh, and then Sherry disappears. And this is what I was talking about where there's this like third act crisis that draws on some pretty dark real world stuff. Because, I mean, it's like a a kid has gone missing. They have like a long search party for her with like the police and the like fire department. And nobody can find her. And I think in a really smart moment, because it's like one of those things where you would be asking yourself why he didn't do this if it didn't happen. You know what I mean? Uh, Greg tells a police tries to tell a police officer about the camera, and it just doesn't make any sense to him, and he thinks he's just like in shock. And it's a clear illustration of like, yeah, you really can't go to anyone because how are you going to explain the future telling camera to an adult? Well, it also sets up the precedent that the adults really don't know. They're not open to, like, any kind of, like, concept of the supernatural or what, you know, could be going on. Yeah. And so he goes home and Spidey has broken into his house looking for the camera, which, you know, scares him more. And then he decides that what he needs to do is return the camera to this guy so it's off his hands and he can, you know, this guy can have it back and stop bothering him. And he calls up Michael and Bird and asks them to come meet him to go give the camera back. And then they're waylaid by the bullies who try to take the camera from them. And then the other two end up bailing on him on giving it back because it's too late and they're scared and whatever. Also, at one point, the camera goes off by accident during the altercation with the bullies and takes a picture that shows Greg and Sherry being like menaced by an unseen shadow like a off-camera figure that's casting a shadow on them and then the next day sherry shows back up well greg rips up the photo yeah he gets sort of mad and frustrated and he rips up the photo and then the next day she shows back up and that's when he gets the idea that the camera is not showing them the future but rather creating a future yeah even though i still don't think that's really much of a confirmation but she comes back and she, she doesn't remember where she was either. That that's another scary thing. Yeah. She basically says that like all she remembers is he took the photo and then she was standing in front of her own house the next like 2 days later and she doesn't know she doesn't remember anything that happened at that time or where she was or whatever. And then they decide to go take the camera back to the Kaufman house and to Spidey and I think they were, he, oh no, wait, so they're, he chases them at one point. That's what the photo with them, with a shadow over them is of. And then after that happens and he gets scared off by an adult, they decide to go take the camera back to him, hoping that he won't be there and they could just sort of like put it in the house. 
But then he's there, and he reveals that he is a mad scientist. This is the best part. This is my favorite part. He's a mad scientist. He says that he's evil, and the camera is evil. But his associate, his partner that he was working with was more evil. And he made the camera, and then he killed him to get the camera... But then basically realize that it's, like, cursed, essentially. That right. he can't do anything with it to gain, like, power or influence. It's just this burden on him. His partner is not only a highly skilled engineer, he's mm. also a master of the dark arts. Yeah. So he built this evil future-telling camera. And then Spidey, whose real name is, like, Dr. Frederick, killed him to get the camera, but then has not been able to do anything with it. And that's why he lives alone in this abandoned house. And they're like, Sherry and Greg are like, okay, great. Here's your camera back. And he's like, my partner knew too much. You know too much. And he tries to like get him. He tries to kill him. And Greg, or no, Sherry just tries to surprise him by taking his picture with the camera. And he has a heart attack and dies of fright before the photo can develop because he's so scared about what's going to happen, what's going to be in the photo of him. And then uh, they leave the camera there in the abandoned house and go home and the, the like twisty cliffhanger ending that happens at the end of every Goosebumps book is the two bullies have been watching them through the window and they sneak into the house and take the camera. Yes. And that's the end of the book. But it packs a lot, 126 pages. Yeah, it's, a, it's, pretty, it's pretty dense uh, for what it is. My take on this story is that it is about coming to terms with the concept of mortality. This is like... A story about a kid who realizes that people can die and that he will die one day. Because, like, functionally what happens in this story is he and his friends do something reckless. Well, one of them gets hurt. And then afterwards, he becomes obsessed with the possibility that bad and dangerous things are going to happen to people in the future. And it negatively affects his mental state. I was. Th- I think you're right because I was thinking about this, and I think one of the things that he plays into is this sort of concept that like middle school kids have, preteens have this kind of uh, obsession with like magical thinking. Yeah, where they really like kind of like process things by thinking that what they think and what they do are causing things to happen, mm-hmm. and I think that this plays into that. And I don't know if there's a such thing as like a reverse magical thinking. What do you mean? You know, like where like they don't want to think about something so it doesn't happen. Almost like oh, a yeah. denial. Yeah, and I think like there's like you were talking about like, oh, that, that thing where the the other kids wanna think the camera is fun and they wanna like use it and stuff, and he is obsessed with like the danger of it. I think that's a really good illustration of like that moment where maybe one person in the friend group kinda out matures the rest of them like they still don't get it even the one that fell doesn't like get it but he understands that like death is waiting around the corner and it's like tearing him up inside and i think the the end thing where just the fear of what might be on the camera is enough to kill frederick is a nice like or to kill spidey is enough is like a like, I think therein lies the moral of the story, where it's the idea that, like, this fear and anxiety about what bad things might happen and how you might get hurt or what, or the fact that you're going to die is always going to be worse than what you're afraid of. Like, it's going to – if you spend all your time thinking about it, then you're going to wind up 
alone in a basement and then you're going to give yourself a heart attack just being scared of the fact that you might be scared. To the adults who are the sort of evil part of the stories in Goosebumps, do they always get their comeuppance? Uh, usually. A lot of times it's... I don't think... There's not always like an antagonist like that. But I think usually when there is, they... they it, it is like that Tales from the Crypt thing where they get like an ironic punishment for their misdeeds. Sometimes the stories just go completely bonkers, though. Like, my, my favorite one... I mentioned, like, oh, I remember the one with the evil sponge. Like, my actual favorite Goosebumps story is called A Shocker on Shock Street, which is a story where these two kids, their dad, or one of their dad, is like a guy who develops animatronics and, and attractions for an amusement park, and they get stuck on, like, a scary, possibly haywire... Uh, ride through this amusement park, and then the end of the story just reveals that they were advanced animatronics designed to test amusement parks. And there's, like, nothing happens in that one. There's no ironic punishment. It's just a weird story about robots. But I think, like, I mean, we mentioned Stephen King briefly, but I think that this friend group adventure is kind Mm. of like a classic sort of Stephen King sort of... I mean, you see it, like, in, like, Stand By Me... And then you also see it, like, even in The Stand and The Gunslinger, he assembles these groups of people, and they go on a quest. And this is sort of mimicked in this Goosebump story. These four school-age children get this object, and they have to deal with it. And I think it's very, a, sort of a classic horror, group horror thing, you know, where there's, you know, yeah. there's four types of personalities, and, and they go on an adventure almost. But this is sort of really, like, a closed kind of, like capsule where they're they're stuck in their town because they're young and they can't do anything and there's really nothing going on so the only thing that's interesting is this sort of haunted house which is another sort of horror it has all the classic horrors like the group of friends the haunted dangerous place the cursed object the the bullies i mean these are all sort of classic sort of sanitized versions of like horror that happens in stephen king novels yeah but i think that's not a but. It's not a counterpoint. <laughs> it's just another point. I think that, like, I I really dig the way that he uses the anxiety factor to squeeze out the horror. Because, like you said, there is this friend group. It's not so much an ensemble story in the way that something like It is. Like, Greg is very clearly the protagonist. And he does this kind of interesting thing where... Because so much of the story is like about his anxiety and an anxiety that he's not shared by his friends, even though they remain his friends throughout the story, several points they become functional antagonists. Yeah, because they kind of fight him. But that's why I said it's not like it. Yeah. Like that ensemble is doing something different. This is kind of, this is more like Stand By Me where it's like, hey, you want to see a dead body? Mm. Hey, do you want to go to a haunted house? That's what they're doing. Yeah, and, like, Spidey and the bullies are not in most of the story. So, for the bulk of the story, the closest thing there are to villains are his friends who are trying to pressure him into using the camera that he's afraid of. But, like, he he doesn't grow to resent them. They don't become, like, cartoonish. I think it's, like, a surprisingly sophisticated bit of character writing. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, like, 
he when he talks to his like older brother because of course he has that typical like older brother like you're a nerd i'm gonna give you a wedgie well, no his older brother is just like a goofball yeah but he like, doesn't he kind of wants to confide in him and then like at the last minute he's like can i take your picture you know like that just to sort of test the camera because he doesn't want to say anything about the camera mm-hmm. also we you kept comparing him to Stephen king but you didn't bring up the fact that there's a catastrophic car accident <laughs> Well, also, there is a Stephen King short story, which I don't know if I mentioned before, called Sundog, which is also about a cursed camera. Mm-hmm. But I think this cursed camera is like, well, first of all, the camera is like a Polaroid. So any kid who's reading this is going to only know Polaroid as an old type of yeah. camera. So even though it's really not that old, it's kind of like they find a very old camera. Well, it's funny because in this, it's like it's old because it's from like 20 years ago. <laughs> and like now you read it and you're like, oh, this is old because it's from like 40 years ago. It's also surprisingly like aged pretty well. Except for like, well, no. I was going to say except for like a couple fashion details that you learn, this could be... A story written now, but we've looped back around to the point where those sound like contemporary fashion descriptions. Like Sherry has like braids and she wears like a neon windbreaker, and it's like, well, she could just wear that outfit now. Like, <laughs> yeah, like that's definitely supposed to be like early '90s hip hop fashion. Yeah, but it's still relevant. And like, except for the fact that like, I, really, only thing that ages this is the fact that he uses a landline to call his friends. Yeah, I think also I like the part where he's the it's the party and Mikey shows up and he's definitely trying to be like the funny one in the group. Yeah. And he's wearing like a Robin Williams Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, and they all roast him for his <laughs> stupid shirt. Uh, there's a lot of that like uh, that dynamic of. They're all friends, but they basically spend all of their time making fun of each other, which feels really real to me, like, at least in comparison to, like, what my experience having friends has been like. But I also have this kind of problem with the ending where he, Greg and Shari, like, literally kill a man, and then they just walk away, like, what are you problem gonna, solved. What are you going to do? <laughs> but, like... If that was today, the book would be 600 pages long, and the last 400 pages would deal with Greg's, like, anxiety of just walking out of that Well, house. can I talk about the sequel? Because <laughs> I was really disappointed when I read the plot for the sequel, and it sounded so dumb. Because I thought this was actually really good, and was, like, very impressed by this story. But the sequel is, it completely ignores the ending where the bullies take the camera. And instead, it starts with Greg going into school... Oh, Greg's in the sequel. He's the protagonist of the sequel, too. Oh. I don't think he's in the third one. I didn't read the plots. Greg is the, the Ryan Gosling character from the TV show. Yeah. He goes to school, and he has to do one of those What I Did Over the Summer presentations. And then, bafflingly, despite everything you would think from the story we just read and described to you, he does his What I Did This Summer project about the evil camera. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Why he he already learned not to tell an adult about it, but, but he, he can tell a whole. Group he tells the teacher, and the teacher doesn't believe him. Of course not. And he says, "If you can bring me the camera as proof, you're going to get an F. Uh, but if you can bring me the camera as proof, I'll up your grade." And if he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to get an F because he wants to be able to go to his cousin's house over the break or something, or the next summer. I don't know. And so he decides to go get the camera. 
which seals bonkers. I don't know why he would ever make that decision. It doesn't make any sense for the character as described in the first one. But when he, he so he breaks back into the Kaufman house, but it's been purchased by another family who are cleaning it out. And so he runs into their kid in the basement, uh, and he tries to explain the situation to him. And the kid's like, well, technically the camera belongs to me now, because my family owns this house, and the camera was in it. And then they fight over the camera, and he accidentally takes a picture of the kid, which shows him stepping on a carpenter's nail. Oh my god. And then the kid goes and steps on the carpenter's nail, and has to be hospitalized, and Greg escapes with the camera. And then I think he gets menaced by the bullies again, and then the end of the story is he takes the camera into school. Oh no, there's this whole weird thing where he takes a picture of himself, and he takes a picture of Sherry, and... They start getting fatter and thinner, like thinner, and then they have to rush to take the pictures to the photo lab where his brother Terry works now, even though in this story he works at the Tasty Freeze. <laughs> uh, and Is he just the guy from Stranger Things at this point? Yeah, and then so then they invert the photos in the photo lab, and that cures them of their thinner curse. And then he takes the camera to the teacher, and the cliffhanger ending of the book is the teacher's like, We'll see what develops. And he goes to take a picture with the camera. Wait, so now the camera is like, has film in it and has to be developed. No, somehow they're able to take the Polaroids to the photo lab and use the chemicals to make a negative of the photo. And somehow that fixes it. It's all weird. And like, it's, like I said, I was really disappointed (laughs) when I read that. It does not hold up to what I think is actually a pretty good story and say cheese and die. I think there was an interesting part about, there was an interview with him about this and the cover that he, the version that we read had the cover, had the camera and it was laying on the grass. Yeah, this was like a reprint from like, it was like classic or vintage Goosebumps where they reprinted some of the older stories. Yeah, but the one that, the original one that was published had the skeleton barbecue family which had nothing to do with the book, so he had to go back and re-edit the book to add a dream sequence so that it matched the cover of the book. Yeah, he has a dream about using the camera, which I actually think is good. Like, it plays further into that anxiety thing, where it's like, even after he decides not to use the camera, but he's so obsessed with the camera that, like, even not using it isn't enough. He's still thinking about it, and so he ends up having this weird dream where he takes a picture of his family at a cookout, and they're all still (laughs) Yeah. Which I remember distinctly in the show when Ryan Gosling does it. The skeletons are like puppets, and oh. like the dad one, I think turns to him and he's like, "Want a burger, son?" or something <laughs> like that. I remember that image because it's it's bonkers. I also liked at the back of the book they like have this bonus section where they give you like stats about the camera. Mm-hmm. And it gives you the special powers, and then it has splat stats, which I guess would be really appealing to kids. They probably love that. Oh shit. yeah, I always love those. Like on the back of like the X Men dream. Yes, yeah, so it had like it was maximum evil, but only one splat for humor. It was not a very funny object. So. No, this is. There's not a lot of jokes. I mean, there the most of the jokes in this are from the friends roasting each other. Yeah, but I think it sort of plays into that we talked about this. Um, this sort of idea of this sort of classic horror of like the haunted object. Yeah, totally. Which I think is kind of like a classic. I mean, you see that like in those pop 
there's a... I mean, we did a whole episode on Hellraiser. Yeah. But that's another classic trope that shows up a lot in Stephen King. And also, it was like Richard Matheson and also loves to have a haunted object in his stories. Yeah. And Shirley Jackson, of course, is another... I mean, she has a whole haunted house, so... I don't know how much more I have to say about this one. Well, it's a short book. Yeah. So overall, how do you think this book held up? Uh, I was surprised by how good it was, honestly. I have a feeling, like, from what I gleaned from reading ahead, that the quality maybe kind of starts to decline over time. But I, I imagine that these early ones probably all hold up pretty well. I mean, he's definitely got the structure of, like, a horror story down, and I think there's some interesting stuff going on here beyond just, like, ooh, spooky camera. Would you have read this and been scared when you were, like, nine? I don't think I would have been scared, but it definitely would have, like, I would have felt the secondhand anxiety. I even felt a little bit of that, like, reading it now. Like, in the moment where he specifically, where he's standing in front of the police officer and he's agonizing over whether or not to tell him, I was like, ugh, that feels, like, really real, because it's like... He's going over all of the ways it could go wrong and all the ways it could go right. And then he, like, decides to tell him. And it's, like, this huge step. And then it accomplishes exactly nothing except making him look like a doofus. I'm assuming that a lot of these, like, law and order figures in the books don't actually believe the children when they try to report things. Yeah, well, like, they can't. Or otherwise it's going to suck all the tension out. Like, the other option is you, you, they do believe them. And then you have to figure out a way to, like, kill a police officer <laughs> in a children's horror story things take a super dark turn i also really like the implication like when the, it's bonkers but like the ended result where this dude is like i'm an evil mad science wizard and i made a <laughs> i made a demon camera but like the implication like there there was like a whole other like probably more legit horror story happening with that guy in the background the whole time where he's tormented by this object that he has and like him and his friend are him and his partner are like summoning demons to enchant consumer electronics well i mean the number one selling fantasy series of all time involves a evil ring that has to be destroyed so a mm-hmm. camera that's evil is you're not- right this is exactly as good as the lord of the rings <laughs> 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 yep Okay, podcast over. <laughs> uh, are we done? Do you have anything else to say about this one? Uh, no, I just, I thought it was interesting. It was a lot um, less frightening for me to read than The Hellbound Heart, I have to say. Well, yeah. I mean, he can't really, a lot of The Hellbound Heart, though, the horror comes from, like, trading in grotesque imagery, which is not a thing you can do when you're writing to a younger audience. So you're going to, you, like, that'll definitely get you banned. Yeah, that's for sure. So. No, I thought it was an interesting read, and I can see why it's sort of relevant to, like, the trend of, like, creating literature for young adults and middle-aged... I was say middle-aged. <laughs> middle school kids? Is that what you meant? <laughs> I'm not talking about Twilight at this point. <laughs> so, do you want to talk about what we're doing next? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to do the next volume of The Wicked and the Divine... Is it scary? Is it spooky for Halloween? I don't know. I also, I realized I don't remember what number we're on or what the title of the volume is. I think it's number seven. Yeah, it is number seven. Because we did the two Imperial Phase ones most recently. I don't know how much horror can have if Sackmet is... She's got her, she's got her head bisected already. Yeah, so... Well, 
yeah, so tune in for the next one for Divine, and then that episode will announce what we're doing in November. And That's uh, right. spoiler alert, stay tuned. Thank you.